Well, hello. We are trying something different today with the preaching. We have been getting used to preaching happening uh, via video with a live stream, and we can see that there will be the need for opportunities to use this uh, as we go into the future. And I'm actually at a wedding today, and I was keen to be able to preach Mark chapter 6, which is where we are. And so uh, just try to imagine that, uh, that I'm here with you and uh, that all my comments are witty and amusing. And I'll try to imagine that you're in front of me. And so we will be able to look at Mark 6 together. Uh, Mark chapter 6 and verses 1 to 29 is where we are. And uh, we're going to be concentrating on uh, verses 1 to 13. Uh, just to, I guess, get you in the mood of the theme. The theme for this text is, is attracting and offending. And um, I guess when we think about that, we might think of food. Well, I, I do a little bit. Um, and there are some certain kinds of foods that uh, we are attracted to or that are attractive to us uh, that can end up being offensive uh, for whatever reason. Those sorts of foods for me are, um, well, baked beans and uh, tried apricots. I, I love them. Uh, I've always enjoyed eating them. But um, the problem comes later. And um, they, they do their work in my digestive system. And um, the result can be a little bit offensive uh, to people uh, around me. Anyway... That's an idea of the theme of where we are. And uh, Mark chapter 6, and I will read from verse 1. Mark 6, verse 1. He went away from there, this is Jesus, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay. The early part of Mark and the rest of the Gospels, as we journey through it, we find that Jesus both attracted people and offended them. Now, it wasn't because of what he ate or how he smelt. 
And we see that today it happens in his hometown, there in verses 1 to 6. And then we see in verses 7 to 13, he sends out his 12 disciples, and they attract and offend as well. And we see in verses 14 to 29, as we follow on from this passage, that Herod was attracted to John the Baptist too. In fact, he was fascinated by him. He wanted to hear John the Baptist. Uh, And yet Herodias, his wife, she was so offended, she wanted John beheaded. And she eventually got her way. It's a sad and sorry tale. I guess there's a good reason why Herodias is not a popular girl's name anymore. She was, um, she was a piece of work. And the point here for us this morning is that if you follow Jesus wholeheartedly, you will be attractive to people and you will be offensive as well. Attractive because of the inclusive way you love, offensive because of the exclusive message you share. That's the main point of where we are today. And um, I hope that we see that as we dig into it in detail. Let's have a look at the text. And uh, we find ourselves in verse 1. Jesus is in Nazareth. Nothing too special about Nazareth. It's a little village. Excavations, archaeological excavations are found. Maybe it's about 500 people. Uh, John 1, uh, Nazareth is mentioned by Nathaniel. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth. So it's a, it's a bit of a nowheresville place. Uh, but as he's there in Nazareth, uh, people come to listen to Jesus. And we find that they are wondering at what he says. Where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? And verse 3, we find they're wondering because, as they say, he's just a carpenter. There's that, there's that, that line there, he, he's the son of of Mary. And, and it's significant, that son of Mary language. Maybe Joseph had died, and so he's being referred to as the son of Mary, but more likely they were insulting Jesus. Another way of saying, we don't even know who this guy's father is. You see, small towns never forget when a wedding happens in September and a baby's born in December. And they're questioning, well, why should we listen to this Jesus, the son of Mary? And we find in, in uh, verse 3 that they took offence at him. That's the result of their questions. They took offence at him. And uh, I've got a couple of pictures there. The first one, uh, a picture of a, a woman scandalised, uh, taking offence at a screen. Uh, the next picture probably uh, amuses me uh, a little bit more, uh, a guy taking uh, offence. It's the Greek word, scandalon. And, uh, and Mark is just making plain here, as he uh, puts this down in verse 3, he's just making plain what's been bubbling away through the early chapters of Mark, and that is that people are offended by Jesus. We see the religious leaders are offended by him. They're, they're the conservatives of Mark's day, the morally upright. And we find in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he, he is offending them all over the place. Well, we find in, in chapter 3 and verse 6 that the Herodians are offended by him as well. And um, they're the progressives of Jesus' day, the secular, the free thinkers. And, um, and they're offended. In fact, they're doing something un- unheard of. They're conspiring with the conservatives, the The progressives and the conservatives are conspiring together saying, we must get rid of him. 
We find in chapter 3 and verse 21 of Mark that even Jesus' family is offended by him. They went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And here in chapter 6, we find that the people of his hometown are offended. People everywhere are offended by Jesus. And, uh, and Jesus puts it starkly himself in John chapter 15 and verse 18. John chapter 15 and verse 18. If you want to turn over there, it's worth seeing this. Uh, some famous words of Jesus. And he says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He doesn't just say particular parts of the world or particular cultures of the world hate him. He says all the world hates him. Everywhere people are offended by Jesus and that's still the reality today. Everywhere around the world people are offended by Jesus. The morally upright are offended because Jesus says, look, following me, being part of my family, my kingdom is not about keeping up appearances. It's about your heart and what's going on there. The progressives of our world, they're offended by him because he says, I'm the only saviour of the world. Always don't lead to God. Western cultures are offended. Eastern cultures are offended. People all over the place are offended by Jesus. Mark makes that clear for us. And as we go on in, in verse 4, we find that Jesus responds with a little proverb uh, that says, you know, in your hometown are prophets without honour and um, even amongst his relatives in his own household. And John 7 uh, alludes to the same thing uh, and it gives us the impression there in John 7 verse 5 that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe him in him during his ministry. And, and then only after he was resurrected did James uh, believe in him. And, and the result of, of all this is verses 5 and 6. Uh, and we find there that, uh, that Jesus could do no mighty work there. Now, don't, don't uh, lose your way here in reading those words when it says he could do no mighty work there. Don't read that he was not capable of doing a mighty work there. Read instead, this is God's judgment on people who will not believe. They have the opportunity to believe and be part of the kingdom. It's there for them, but they won't take it. And, uh, and I read this quote in my commentary this week. It's going to appear on the screen for you. And I thought it was very good. And it's this, what amazes God about humanity is not its sinfulness, and propensity for evil, but it's hardness of heart and unwillingness to believe in him. Humanity wants a spectacular sign from God or a great display of divine power, but it does not want God to become a human being like one of us. Let's pause there for a moment because that comment takes us to something we need to reckon with in this passage. And, and it's this question, why is Jesus offensive? Verse 3, I think, helps us understand why Jesus is offensive, or at least why he's offensive in this case in Mark. They're asking, who does he think he is? Isn't this just a, a carpenter? Isn't this just Mary's son? You see, they might have also said, isn't this just ordinary Jesus who we've grown up with? They couldn't get past the ordinariness of Jesus as he was speaking. If this was the Messiah, surely he couldn't be so ordinary. It, you see, it offends them. 
that an ordinary person they had seen grown up, who had lived amongst them, who they'd seen in the, in the schoolyard, that ordinary person would claim to be the Messiah, the saviour of the world. Why does that offend? Because they're thinking, surely the saviour of the world couldn't be like that. Or salvation couldn't work like that. Think about this. The people of Jesus' day, they had an idea about how salvation would work. They had an idea about what the Messiah would be like, what their saviour would be like. He was a military figure, a king, and he was, he was meant to be there in the palace, riding in, conquering the Romans, delivering them. Humanity today, too, has ideas about the way salvation should work. And you can work out what that looks like. But what we see here, and what we need to reckon with, is that the salvation that Jesus Christ offers us seems so ordinary on a couple of levels. Firstly, I want us to see that it seems so ordinary because of the humanness of this salvation, this saviour. You see, biblical salvation is not an escape from this world, but it's a transformation of this world, including us. Other religions, they speak of some form of liberation from ordinary humanness. Getting away from our bodies into some sort of transcendent spiritual existence or some sort of nirvana or, or something different. They see salvation as releasing us from this world, but biblical salvation goes in the other direction. God comes down into our humanness. He gets entangled in it uh, and he eats and he drinks. He feels our pain. He feels our, our sorrow. He joins in with our suffering of human life. And eventually God dies there on a cross to redeem that world that has been in the midst of. Now his resurrection is extraordinary, yes, but the risen Jesus, he is so ordinary. He's eating fish. He's not floating around in the clouds. He, he's eating and drinking just like any other ordinary human at the time. You see, this, the humanness of salvation unnerves us. And if our understanding of salvation with God is that we get a ticket to heaven and get out of this broken world, we have misread the New Testament. You know, just go and have a look at Romans 8, 20 to 23. You see, Jesus is all about redeeming his people and his creation, renewing us and it to what we were created for. And I think if, if somebody asks you, isn't there salvation in any other faith, a worthwhile way to respond to that is to say, well, what kind of salvation are you talking about? Because there's no other salvation like this one that's here in the Bible. No other salvation that holds out a promise for the redeeming of people and our world. It's all escaping from this world. So we see the humanness of salvation uh, offends us, but also the graciousness of salvation offends us or seems ordinary. And, and by that I mean... As humanity, we are, we are wired for a salvation that involves us earning it somehow. I do this, and, and I do this, and I get that. It's so ingrained in us in the way we work and do things. 
I just have to watch my, my son Noah. Um, Noah, um, he comes and asks me, Dad, can I use, can I use your phone? Uh, no, not at the moment, Noah. Um, and I, um, or no, actually, I'll, I'll reverse it. I say, Noah, can you do this for me? No, nah, sorry, Dad. I say, Noah, do you want to use my phone? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, do this and this, and then you will get the phone. The idea of earning something is right there in the middle of who we are as humanity. And if we have to earn our salvation, we can prove ourselves somehow. But the salvation Jesus offers that is by grace to those who believe and repent, well, any ordinary person could receive that. Um, we see that pretty clearly in the, in the story of, of two kings. Uh, sorry, in the story of Naaman who appears in 2 Kings chapter 5. And, uh, and Naaman is this Syrian general who has leprosy and he hears about the God of Israel. And, um, and he says, well, uh, I, I, I surely should go and see him to see if I can be healed. And he, and he goes and, and he takes what he thinks he will need to get healing. He, he takes money. He takes some, some letters of recommendation from the king to show what an upstanding person he is and why he deserves healing. Uh, like his resume, I guess, we could think of it. He, he takes his sword in case God would say he needed to do some great deed to get healing. Uh, but when he gets there to Israel, to the prophet Elisha, uh, Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He just sends his servant out and says, uh, go and wash in the Jordan River. And Naaman is furious. Why? Well, he's offended by the ordinariness of what God is asking him to do, to be healed. Um, you see, his money doesn't mean anything. His resume doesn't mean anything. His sword, well, that's no use to him in the Jordan River. And he says, why would I lower myself to washing in this dirty river? I've got plenty of cleaner rivers back home. I could have done it there. And his servants go to him and they say, if the prophet had told you to do some great deed, wouldn't you have done it? You know, if Elisha had come out and said, you know, go and, go and wipe out that dragon with your sword and save the princess, our last sleeping beauty, um, Naaman would say, yes. Now there's a salvation that fits my status. There's a salvation that fits my ego. Just give me the chance to show what I can do. Off I go. And I'll do it. Of course, such a salvation gives us some leverage with God as well. He can't have complete control. He can't ask us to do everything because we've done some favour for him. You see, the gracious ordinariness of God's offer levels him. He knows what it means. He knows that anybody could do what Elisha is asking him to do and wash in that river. A, a prostitute could go and do it. A tax collector could go and do it. A lawyer could go and... No, sorry. A modern joke. His pride is offended. And the same happens for us. John Newton uh, wrote a book called The Scandal of Grace in a Performance-Driven World. And that essentially sums it up. Grace is a scandal to us when we are so wired for earning God's favour. Traditional societies are offended by it because it says that morally virtuous people and morally bankrupt people are all on the same level together. 
progressive secular societies are offended because we can't all find God in our own little way. We all have to come through the same way that, 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 and that is offered by all. And that is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. These people were offended. They were offended at the ordinariness of the salvation of Jesus, at the ordinariness of the Saviour that was in front of them. And in it we see the humanness and the graciousness of salvation. You know, if we haven't been offended by Jesus, maybe we haven't got to grips with who he is and the claim he makes on our life. But I do want to say when the offence of King Jesus does confront us, will we hang on to that offence or will we give it up? and submit and show ourselves to be part of his kingdom in our response to him. Let's move on to, uh, to verses 7 to 13. We've seen something of the offence of Jesus and why people are offended at him. Uh, and in verses 7 to 13, we see that Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, two by two. And uh, we may look at this and think to ourselves, oh, Actually, I hadn't yet noticed they're ready to be, to be going out representing Jesus and doing what he's asking them to do. And I just want to say, be encouraged. God still loves to use people who don't feel or look ready. People who aren't perfect, who bumble around with their words. You know, for centuries, God has been building his church with willing people rather than polished people. And these, these disciples, they certainly weren't polished uh, as they went out. And, uh, and they go, verse 8, they're charged to take nothing for their journey except the staff and, um, and some sandals and a single tunic. And, and commentators have said maybe this looks back to the Exodus, God's new people going out of Egypt uh, with urgency to serve him, trusting him wholeheartedly. And here God's new people, inaugurating the new kingdom that Jesus speaks of, uh, go out wholeheartedly with urgency uh, to serve him. Whatever, there are, uh, there are no supports that he says. And I guess this lack of support means they're trusting God as they go. And also the lack of supports are forcing them to live amongst the people they're going to. They're accepting the hospitality of the people they're with. And then we come to verse 11 and um, these words here that, uh, that may seem uh, a bit strange to us. Um, if any place will not receive you, not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. What's Jesus talking about there? Well, I... I think it makes sense that Jews in that time, when they were travelling outside Palestine, they were required to shake themselves free of dust when they returned home to Palestine so they didn't pollute the Holy Land. And so here, the disciples, when they are rejected by people, Jesus tells them, shake the dust off your feet, indicating that they are declaring this Jewish village where they've been to be a heathen place, which of course would have been really offensive to them. But he's saying that because these people wouldn't believe the message about Jesus and he wants to send them a signal. I don't think we need to read this as that they are damned, but actually they are being warned. If you continue not to believe and not repent, it puts you outside of God's kingdom, God's people. 
verses 12 and, and 13, they go out speaking about Jesus and serving the people they're with as they cast out demons and anoint with oil many who are sick and they heal them. Here's the point I want to get us to uh, in this little section. And it is simply this. If we follow Jesus, we will attract and offend as well. It happened for the disciples here. It most certainly happened for John the Baptist in this, in this perplexing story that follows this story. Um, if you want to go and dig around that later story of, of doubt on Herod's part, of deceit on Herodias's part, of, of opportunity lost um, for Herod uh, as well. But for John the Baptist it happened, for the disciples it happened. And uh, through the early church and down to now, true followers of Jesus are attractors and offenders as well. You see, we have the most exclusive message the world has heard. Jesus is the only saviour. And he calls us to believe and submit. And people are offended by that exclusive message. But at the same time, the power of Jesus in us leads us to love people radically. And Christianity rings true when Christians act inclusively. When they care for the poor, when they break down divisions, when they help the marginalised and the downtrodden. When they welcome people in, we attract and we offend and we're meant to. But there's some implications in that that I, I want you to think about as we just look at this briefly and apply it to us. And here's one of them. If we are constantly offensive to people, we need to ask ourselves whether that is because of our own righteousness and our own faithful following of Jesus, or, or, or whether it's because of our obnoxiousness, our rudeness. The two things are not the same. And, uh, and maybe we need to pray for humility. There's one thing to think about. Uh, secondly, though, and I think probably more the case for us, if we say we are a follower of Jesus, but we only attract people, we're, we're known as just a nice person, and people are not offended by our message of Jesus, well, there's some things for us to think about. You know, it could be that we're spending all our time around other, other believers and we need to get out more. It, it could be that we have a Jesus compartment of our life that doesn't cross over into all the other compartments of our life and we are inconsistent. And, and I just want to say, remember, Jesus is a king. It's not a democracy. He's not looking for us to have a compartmentalised Christianity. He's looking for us to follow him in a way that affects all of us. It could also be that, that we find ourselves being a coward. Fear of rejection is, is gnawing at us and we need to ask how much our hearts are really affected by King Jesus. And, and I say that to myself. It's a confronting question. How do we have our hearts affected by King Jesus? Well, think about this for a moment. Jesus got the rejection of God so that we could get the acceptance of God. 
Jesus got the rejection of God so we could have the acceptance of God. And I don't know about you, but that means to melt us. And I ask you tonight, today, doesn't that melt you? Doesn't that affect your heart and change you as you think about that? The rejection that Jesus took so that we might have the acceptance that God offers. And I think that means we can take any other rejection that comes our way. You see, that's how we hold out to the world an exclusive message in an inclusive way. Because we can't be self-righteous or proud about a salvation that centres around the God of the universe coming down to die on a cross for us. It turns the world upside down. And that self-giving love empowers us to be the same. To upend the expectations and ideas of the world and be attractive and offensive the way Jesus was. Let's ask him to help us as we seek to do that. Father, we thank you today for your word. Thank you for the truth it brings, the challenge that is there. We thank you for our saviour. Remarkable. The way he attracted people to himself and the way people were offended by him. The integrity of his life and his message. And, and God, we, we ask that you would give us courage to think about what that means for us. Where we are offended by Jesus, I ask that you'd help us to understand how and why. And to, and to bring that to you. To, to let go of that offense and, and submit to you as our king where we find ourselves struggling to, to live out this, this message, this attraction and offending, exclusiveness and inclusiveness, I ask that you'd empower us by your spirit. You would affect our hearts in such a way by, by who Jesus is for us and what he has done for us, that we may be able to hold out to the world this amazing gospel in a way that honours and glorifies you. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.